Thank you, guys. <clears throat> okay, I got to tell you guys a dumb joke real quick. All right, sorry. <laughs> All men should make coffee for their women. Actually, it's in the Bible. I don't know if you guys knew this. Hebrews. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I needed to get that over with. I don't know why, but I had to tell you that. <clears throat> I don't know if you have heard this on the news lately, but there's a town in America that's under siege by a very powerful and destructive enemy. It isn't an enemy of violence, but it's one of psychological warfare, one that is having a catastrophic hold and effect upon mankind. And actually, the city's closer than you think. It's, it's right here. For those that live in the walls of the town, they're safe. Those walls within, it's okay. And the closer to the center of town, the more peace and identity, the more peace and clarity. They actually experience what is good in the kids. All the kids, they feel safer and are more secure and actually have lower rates of depression. Like everything, though, the rumors and the curiosity of what is outside of the walls of the town are gripping and quite honestly attention-getting. But why? Because the enemy doesn't seem harmful, but actually fun, exciting, and almost freeing. It's hidden. It's a hidden, almost unseen enemy. The farther from the center of town and the closer you live to the walls at the edge of town, the less settled the people are and the harder for the kids to see how good they actually have it. The rules of the town, the rules they have heard are said to be good and keep them safe and free, but what is outside the walls doesn't seem all that bad either. And the people outside the walls give an illusion of it being safe and free. The people living outside these walls, they seem happy. They don't seem harmful or harmed. They actually seem like they have more fun and are more satisfied and even get more to experience. But what those in the town looking to those outside the town don't see are the scars. They don't see the pain. It's hidden. That's part of the devastating effects of this psychological warfare. There seems to be a sense of happiness until you have been around them long enough, especially for those that have lived inside the city walls and have believed in the ideals and the rules of the town. But when outside of town and were captured by this enemy, once that sense of happiness begins to lessen, they begin to get consumed with looking for it. They move on to looking for a way to feel good again so that they don't have to deal with the strife, the pain, the inner turmoil, the loneliness. But there is something about the kids, and it's unfortunate. They seem to be on edge, always looking, emotionally tired, always guarded, depressed. They are just different than the kids that live in the center of this town. There's just an innocence about those kids in the center of town. Some mistake this innocence for being sheltered and naive. But once you really stop and look at them, it's actually it's an innocence that you, you wish for. Unfortunately, there are many that have been captured by this psychological warfare, and it has had its toll upon them and the ones they love. Many get struck in this cycle of perpetual looking 
for something better. You see, they wanted what they didn't have. What the town offered was just too narrow, too mundane, and too constricting. They wanted to know what it was like to do things this other way and didn't listen to the warnings. They were mesmerized by the promises of how it felt only to be captured by an immense amount of inner emotion and unknown almost unspeakable grief that just wasn't right. There were so many promises that it would be better. There were so many saying to live such a narrow view was holding them back from really seeing what we could have, what would make us feel good. There's a battle for marriage, for family, for gender, really for the gospel that's going on. Jesus was very unashamedly and unapologetically declared that he came to bring abundant, fulfilling, freeing life. The enemy only comes to steal peace, to kill joy, and destroy hope that is settled in a faith that has the answer to our purpose, our rightly placed worship, and a sense of security and trust that only comes from God. It's been an attack filled with empty promises that has only led to more confusion and hostility. A constant searching for what will make me happy that has led to even more brokenness. And a great fear that leads to the worship of me and erodes the fabric of a society that flourishes with stability. The saddest part is that this has invaded our churches and unfortunately is gaining a stronghold. A foothold within the doors. A few of us just got back from the Maven Conference, where the big push is helping our kids navigate today's mantra of sexual freedom that says, You do you. Be tolerant. Explore your sexuality. And we need to agree with marriage equality. We heard of how, in the midst of a technological society where we have everything right at our fingertips, Right? Right here. Depression and suicide rates are ever climbing. Why? Shame tied to a deep sense of loneliness. We need to go back to our roots and see if there really is a foundation for what the bedrock principle of marriage has been within the church and is there a reason for it. This is a pervasive guerrilla warfare type attack upon the very basic, very central to society's well-being and its growth. It is an attack on God, his character, his word, his, the Holy Scripture is his good news for us, really the gospel. In the creation account, there seems to be a progression that happens. Vast creation, right? Heavens and the earth. To the creation of the creature that God breathes his life into the creature that bears his image, his likeness. There is value, purpose, importance in that creature due to that breath. The creature was perfectly made, but by itself was insufficient. He was the only part of creation said not to be good because it was alone. Man was alone. Man was alone and insufficient. Perfectly made in the image of God, but insufficient to live out and demonstrate that image of God. 
Well, we see that in Genesis 1, 27, where it says, it says very clearly, Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. That doesn't mean that God himself is insufficient, though. Within the triune nature of this Godhead, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, there is nothing needed. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. Exodus 3.14 alludes to that. I am who I am. He is the sufficient one. There is no one greater. He needs nothing. Acts 17 mentions how, for he has no needs. God has enough glory. We can't add to him. He created us for his glory, for our good, for our joy. It is for our our joy to live within his walls, not flirting with what's outside those walls. This brings us joy that comes from the peace that lives within the sure hope of what God in Christ Jesus has promised us. That's where the fulfilling promises are. God gave us in the garden all that we needed. Himself, male and female relationship, a role in his creation, and an abundance of his provision. But when we chose to sin, it got all messed up. In our choosing that what God provided was it wasn't good enough, choosing to be our own God, to make our own destiny even, to set our own rules, man, it messed it up. Instead of trusting and relying upon God's provision, we sought to do it our way. We talked Pastor Jared talked about that last week, his way versus our way. But what did it bring? It brought a need for joy because now there's sorrow, shame, grief. It brought a need for peace because now there's strife, there's struggle, there's division, there's dissension. It brought a need for hope. There is now a great need to fix what is broken, what seems lacking, what's deficient, and what's only getting worse. To be able to begin to answer this epidemic of unfixable proportion, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to look at the blueprint for the correct design of God's original, right, and only good plan for creation for us, specifically mankind. So let's look at God's way. Before we read our passage, though, let, what's the context? It's nothing. It started with nothing. In the, begot, in the beginning, God created out of nothing. God, as he does, he speaks and gives life. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we get a brief snapshot of each of the six days of creation. And with that, we see the pinnacle of creation, God making male and female in his image. He said all he had made was good, very good. In chapters 2, we get a little bit deeper look into God's provision and a part of this creation that he breathes life into. God has provided, he has given man all he needs to survive with plenty and satisfied without need. Except for one major thing. God recognizes this in the seemingly brief conversation Amongst the Godhead that we're going to look at in a second. He acknowledges something isn't good here. Man was alone. And sure, he had God, right? 
But that relationship did not fulfill creation. It wasn't the finished work of being made in God's image, male and female. Man couldn't fulfill the mandate of God to be fruitful and multiply the earth, to have command over it or, and to be superior over it. Man alone couldn't get done all God had set out for him. Before we dive into our passage, I hope we walk out of here today seeing two truths that lead us to glorifying God. The first is that God made male and female. The second, God made marriage. When we see, acknowledge, and live according to his way, we glorify him. Male and female are made in his image. We have value, a calling, and boundaries to live within. Marriage is a high and holy covenantal institution made by God for the benefit of mankind and the worship of God. Let's read our text, though. So if you guys would stand with me, we're going to read Genesis 2, 18 to 25, and then we'll dive in. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Some translations say it this way, that a helper suitable for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gives names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said this, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God bless what the reading in, in this time of his word. You guys may be seated. Father, as we dive into this a little farther, just may it be your spirit that speaks. May these be your words. May they reflect your heart. And as we leave this place today, may we feel encouraged yet challenged. May we see, may we lift high what you lift high. In your son's name, amen. In our passage in verse 18, God says it's not good for man to be alone. So we're going to look at the first truth. God made male and female. We also see God says he will make the companion for that man. God made man out of the dust, out of the same ground the animals were created. Nothing special though, right? Until, until God breathes his life into him. It's like he is saying, I give you my care, my provision, my love. I give life to the shell of chemical elements stirred up from the dust. This puts man on a whole different level than the animals. Really, he is saying, I give you value and I will power you to do what I have set out for you. We see this actually in, in 
the Spirit of God. In John 20, 22, we see Jesus breathed onto the disciples. And he said to them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Those that know Christ and believe him have the same spirit. The Spirit of God guides us and empowers us to do what God has set out for us to do. Adam is given a task to name the animals, but he realized something was missing here. The rest of creation had a counterpart. He didn't. He was alone. None of the animals were the helper he was looking for. None were suitable. His insufficiency was glaring right at him, straight in his face. There was nothing else like him. There was no partner like him. There was no other creature capable of a relationship that shares ideas, shares emotions, a sharing of the soul, a sharing of the heart and the depth of one person's good and personality. In verse 20, the first man realizes his need. We see that. He realizes the desire of his need is not met. He experiences what God said. It is not good for man to be alone. Man can't fix the problem. Evolution doesn't fix the problem. God does. God performs the first surgery, right? The first, he plays the first anesthesiologist. Man, you can't even say that. <laughs> God puts the first man into a deep sleep and from his side fashions or builds the woman. And the Hebrew word translated build or form speaks of a care, a design. As if it was actually made for something. The word translated rib that we also see also almost everywhere else in Scripture is translated as side, almost like an entirety. Woman is made from much of the same as man, from a side, similar yet different, made in the same image of God. In keeping with our text this morning, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the plutonic role between male and female in society and in church. There is much in Scripture that speaks to this, actually. But where our passage this morning is very clearly speaking to us is the two truths that God made male and female and God made marriage. So let's look at the second truth. I like what Matthew Henry says about this. He says, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Marriage is a beautiful institution made by God. It is a holy covenantal institution. By covenantal, I mean this. It's a promise made before God, kept till death. Jesus gets questioned by the Pharisees about divorce and the ease of divorce in Matthew 19. But Jesus leads them in his extremely wise and intelligent way. He leads them away from thinking of marriage as a man-directed institution, but towards a God-ordained and orchestrated one. Jesus defines who fits in a marriage, defines the marriage, and who made the marriage. Jesus said this, he said in Matthew 19, he says, God made them male and female. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Here it is. Here is where Jesus points to the author, and he says this, since they are no longer two but one, let no one 
separate them. For God, catch that, for God has joined them together. The union of man and woman, it's God's doing. It's not man. Divorce is a result of sin, though. It is not what God originally intended. He intended for husband and wife to be together forever. Enjoying one another emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually, and even physically. Let's acknowledge it as that. Let's live as if it is just that. Let's recognize that as we value it, accept God's plan for marriage, and then respond to it in that way. Let's begin to lift up marriage as God intended so that we are revealing the gospel in an even more clear manner. God created the man first, then he created the woman out of the man. Woman was the answer to his desire, his need. He was not sufficient to complete the image of God in mankind, to carry out the mandate of God. We see that. We read that. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over every living thing that moves on earth. There is something more than just a friendship that's going on here. Verse 23 gives us this clue. It says in, in uh, Genesis 2, it says this. It says, at last, Adam exclaimed, she is part of my flesh and bone. She will be called woman because she is taken out of man. Adam is recognizing that she is like him in nature. She is what he is desiring. And she will meet his need. She is the piece missing in the creation story that was not good and has now been placed to finish the puzzle. There are some interesting things happening here that, that just that need our attention. And when looked at through eyes untrusting of God's design, it's going to cause question. But we must look at this union of man and woman, this marriage, this relationship as one ordained and orchestrated by God for his glory. For the good of mankind. So first, the woman was a suitable helper. She is what he needed. This doesn't give the man superiority. She is a compliment to him. What he lacks, she brings. The other creatures are not a suitable fit for man. The original language here points to her corresponding to him being equivalent in character, form, and function. I like how one guy says it she was the ideal partner it's interesting to note the same word used for helper in genesis there is the same word used for god as helper for man in other parts of scripture it has to do with the one who puts themselves under another to help them accomplish the goal one who provides what is lacking it reveals value but the responsibility doesn't fall on the helper. It still falls on the one who needs help. Second, she was made for man. This can get sticky. God made man from the dust and breathed life, breathed life into him. God made her from man for man. She wasn't made for his use like a tool for his whims and fixes. But as one that comes alongside him in cooperation and a relationship 
to carry out what God intended for him, or really for them to do. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks to this. There is an authority, not one of lording over and superiority, but one of leadership and responsibility, speaking to the husband, speaking about the husband. When looked in Ephesians chapter 5 and other passages, the wife is called to submit to her husband, and he is called to love his wife. The submission is not one of surrender. It's not one of withdrawal or apathy or inferiority. It is a mutual commitment and it's a cooperation to accomplish what God's called them to do. The love that the husband, he is to give her, is one of sacrifice and it's a service. One that seeks the ultimate good for her, for his wife, pointing to and revealing the very forgiveness, the very love, and the very leadership that God gives to him. It is not pointing towards dependence upon himself, but upon Christ. I was listening to a sermon the other day, and the preacher made a very interesting statement that I want to read to you. He said, the man is the aggressor, not speaking in a violent way, but in a way of, of conquering, going forward, really taking initiative. And the woman is a respondent. The husband is the only one told to love, to love her as Christ loves the church. The church responds to Christ's love. The picture is is that Christ is the husband, the church is the wife. Christ acts. He is the aggressor to reveal and to give love. And it's the church's, or also yours and mine, call to respond to that love. Men, here's a question for you. If you feel your wife responds in distrust, in strife, is distant, resistant, or is hesitant, maybe it's not her. Maybe she's just responding. The third thing I want to bring up of interest is this epilogue to the creation account, verses 24, 25. It says this, it says, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. First, the man and wife we find in this ending of Genesis 2 where it talks about marriage. The man and wife, the words used, they're both singular. And it says a man and a wife. It, it's a closed heterosexual relationship. There's nothing to add to it. There's nothing to take away from it. And second, the man leaves or, for, or forsakes his parents and family to become his own, where he is to be the head of that distinct family. Third, he is to cleave to his wife. The word used for cleave can also be said to join, to hold fast, to cling to, to closely pursue. This isn't just speaking of proximity, but of oneness, togetherness. The picture of this word of, of cleave actually is, is glue. This gives light to Jesus' statement. He said in Matthew 19 where he says this. He says, let no one separate them, husband and wife, for God has joined them together. This is covenantal language, a language of a promise, a language that is lifetime, a language that is meant to be held till death. In other words, husbands, keep your focus upon one woman. 
she, your wife, she is your joy. Choose her to be your joy. Forsake all others. Love her as your wife and her alone. Give her a reason to respond in favor to you. Pursue her. The phrase, the two are united into one, or the two shall become one flesh, some translations say. In Hebrew culture, this term one flesh involves unity of the whole person. It's the purpose, their, the physical part of them, and their entirety of their life. This union of husband and wife is the merging of two people into one in such a way that little can affect one without affecting the other. It has deeply tied within its sexual intimacy. The converse is true, though, in Scripture. If we were to read it just the opposite, where there is no marriage, no two becoming one flesh, sexual intimacy becomes sexual immorality if we choose to be one flesh outside of marriage. This one flesh is exclusive to marriage, disallowing premarital sex, homosexuality, polygamy, adultery, incest, prostitution, and other sexual perversions. This one flesh is often used of in Scripture for the consummating sexual act in marriage. Let me read Hebrews 13.4. Hebrews 13.4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And I want to focus in on that red part that you can't see. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let us do just that because God made it. He ordained it. And he orchestrated. Let's hold marriage in honor. The picture of Christ in the church found in Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. It's a picture of the gospel. To hold marriage in high esteem as God intended is to lift up the gospel. Christ is the head of the church, the authority over it, the Savior, the one to do and to give for her so that it can live, the one to provide for it and nourish it so that it can flourish. The church is to submit to Christ and receive and respond to what he gives and where he leads. Ephesians 5.32 says it this way. It says, This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church, speaking of the marriage. The picture of husband and wife, as it was intended, provides a great description of the union of Christ and the body of believers. He is the bridegroom. We are his bride. It is better to live within the walls God put up for marriage. It is the most healthy for the husband and wife, the kids, and society. And in that, there is no shame. Adam and Eve, it says at the very end, they were naked and they felt no shame. There was total transparency, no embarrassment. They were completely exposed to one another. They fully knew each other and were fully known. There was nothing hidden, no argument. There was nothing of ill intent. They were secure in what the other thought. There was no comparison. There was only good. There was only joy to be experienced by the other. Just like the name of Eden, right? Peace, delight. And it was a relationship at rest. Until sin. 
when mankind did it his way, all kinds of havoc was poured out. We see jealousy, lying, wickedness, sexual perversion, corruption, murder, divorce, families falling apart, pointing fingers at one another. Never to take responsibility, utter brokenness. Being stuck in a perpetual cycle of looking for the thing that's going to make me feel whole again. Looking for value, looking for love. Shame covered them when sin came. Evil had put a wedge. It had marred them, not just physically, but psychologically, emotionally, spiritually speaking too. Genesis 3, 9 and 10 says this, The Lord God called to Adam, Where are you? So Adam replied, I heard you, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Shame causes us to hide from that which we are close to. The fear of rejection has now consumed man because of sin. They blamed one another. Strife, dissension, division. Being able to live in the image of God is now destroyed. And as man tries... He tried to fix the problem, to make it right again. Make it right all by himself. But Genesis 3, 7 says this. It says, At that moment of committing sin, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they strung fig leaves together around their hips to cover themselves. This didn't restore the relationship that was now broken between man and his perfect holy maker. And it didn't fix the relationship between the man and the woman either. But we have a good God. He started, he began the work of restoration, of redemption. In Genesis 3.21, just a few verses later, we see this. It says, The Lord God had made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. God did it. God was now fixing, making a way that man could not fix and man could not make a way for our sin separates us from god but god in his mercy went looking for us our feeble efforts of trying to be good enough or maybe trying to fix our wrongs and earn back god's approval just isn't enough to break one part of the law the bible says is to break all of the law we are guilty but god in his mercy and his great wisdom, sent his son to die for us. While we were still sinners, he took our sin and penalty of it, and he gave us his righteousness, his perfect right relationship with God, forgiving our sins, putting new clothes of righteousness on us to cover that nakedness and shame, to do, do away with it. Clothes that are not stained with sin. So what does this mean for our marriages, though? God can work and restore, to restore, rebuild, and better your marriage. He put a new heart in you. For those of you that know Christ, he put a new heart in you, one that is being restored back to the original image of God, that good, that perfect, that pleasing image. The image that was seeking his ways will bring joy into your relationship. I hope we can walk out of here today seeing two truths that lead us to being able to glorify God. First, that God made male and female. And the second truth is that God himself made marriage. 
And that when we see, acknowledge, and live according to his way, we glorify him. Male and female are made in his image. It has value. We have value. We have calling and boundaries to live within. And marriage is a high and holy covenantal institution made by God for the benefit of mankind and the worship of God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for what you give. It is a high and holy covenantal institution. May we understand that within our marriages, we can reveal the gospel in a very clear and very powerful way as we seek your face, as we live according to your statutes, as we love our spouse as you have loved us, as our spouses respond to us through that love that you have given us. Lord, may we as men, as husbands, may we reveal, may we shower the love that you have given us, the sacrifice. May we look to you so that we can give our wives everything that you want for them. And Lord, I pray for the women, the wives, the wives-to-be, God, that they would put themselves into a place of submission, not out of the sense of being less than, but simply out of calling, a good calling that actually brings honor, a calling that fulfills a need to expose to the world the image of God, the true image of God, to expose to the world the gospel of what it looks like for us, the church, for the bride of Christ to respond to you when you call us and when you pour out your love and your forgiveness to us. Lord, thanks for your word. Just go before us this morning in your son's name. Amen.